Hello everyone, welcome back to another exciting episode of the Modern CFO Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Andrew Seski. Today, we have a guest who knows the auto world intimately, having worked at renowned brands like McLaren, Aston Martin, even Lotus. We'll dive into the world of high-performance vehicles, financing the luxury transportation sector, and of course, discuss an innovative new electric motorcycle company called Verge. Today's guest, Mark Wilson. Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. Pleasure, Andrew. It's, uh, it's good to be here. Mark, in recent years, Formula One has taken just a remarkable surge in popularity with thrilling races and superstar drivers. And for most people, this is a new phenomenon. But I'm curious to know where the origin of your you know, passion for this industry came from. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's fascinating. I mean, you know, you, you think about the global viewing audience and it is by far and away the world's uh, largest sport in that respect. And I, th- I think you'll correct me if I'm wrong post-production, I'm sure, but um, I think it's something like 23 races annually attracting a Super Bowl level of viewing figures for every race. Wow. So, you know, it's, t- it's it, you know, the global reach of Formula One is staggering. I grew up watching drivers like Nigel Mansell, Alan Prost, Ayrton Senna, racing their naturally aspirated V10s, V12s around the track. Incredibly thrilling and and a real daredevil stuff. And and I was just captivated by by watching that on qualifying on a Saturday, the race on a Sunday. That they, they were kind of things you scheduled your your teenage day around very much. And you know, I had a group of friends who I grew up with who were. You know, equally enthused by, by by F1, so it was kind of talking stuff on the school bus on a on a Monday, and um, you know, in a weird way, I, I, I as as a Brit, Nigel Mansell was the guy of that era. He was the man to follow, but but I didn't follow Mansell. I was I was captivated by the the red and white McLarens of Prost and Senna. And I remember seeing a um, an in car shot of Senna driving his Lotus some years before around Monaco when obviously this kind of in-car footage was pretty nascent stuff, so the quality wasn't superb. But what struck me, and this is in the era of manual shift gearboxes, none of these paddles behind the steering wheels, right, two hands on the wheel. So he's got one hand on the top of the wheel and one hand somewhere ferreting about for a gear stick. And this thing is going at absolute warp speed, and it was jaw-dropping to watch the skill. So that's kind of where it came from for me. Well, I'd love to talk about your early career a little bit before we go into explaining, you know, the electric motorcycle space and what you're doing with Verge today. What were some of the early career decisions that you felt that you made that were um, that informed an ability to be able to be a value add in a space that you were really passionate about? Yes, yeah, interesting. I mean, my my background is, you know, I studied law as a major at, at college. Uh, and so I wasn't particularly engineering focused. I wasn't a particularly good engineer. And I, I think my wife would tell you, I can't put a set of shelves up straight. So it was never going to be that route for me. But when I left uh, college, I, I ended up on a on a very forward thinking graduate program in, in one of the big public utilities in the UK. So not, not cars at all, but I always had one eye on cars. And, uh, and it was it was always reasonably, uh, I was always reasonably focused on trying to get to do something in the car industry. And so after a few years of, of, uh, of doing a graduate training program and doing my professional qualifications, so I'm, I'm SEMA qualified, Chartered Institute of Management Accountants. After, after a few years of getting that under my belt, the opportunity came with the business I was with, uh, AWG, to, to move out to a place in the UK called Norwich. Just so happened, my wife, who I'd met some years earlier, she wasn't my wife then, 
had gone to do her master's degree out there. Also happens that Norwich is the home of Lotus. That's where that company was. So I could I could see as I headed out there, not necessarily with a particular plan in mind, but I'm going out there to, to be where my girlfriend is based. Uh, we're in our 20s. It's a great time of life. No real, no real commitments. Norwich is a great city. And, you know, there is Lotus parked just outside of Norwich. So I went there and six months later, an opportunity came up and put my hat in the ring. And suddenly there I am, project accountant at Lotus, doing what I love on a, on a car program. Funnily enough, the first thing I ever worked on as a, a very junior accountant at Lotus was a, a ride and handling program that Lotus Engineering, so an outward facing, not, not the car building part of the business, the outsourced engineering part of the company, that Lotus Engineering was working on for none other than Aston Martin. So I ended up working on the early series Vanquish One. I was the project accountant, Project um, Bolton, it was called, and, and doing ride and handling and, and lightweight structures for, for that particular programme, which, of course, Lotus was great at. Lotus, Colin Chapman's moniker was, if in doubt, just add lightness. I think I've, I think I've bastardised what he said there, but it was, it was kind of off that ilk. So Lotus, well known for ride and handling and and really uh, chassis design development and driver feel and Aston had done that. So I was, I was overjoyed to be on that programme. Not for long, though, because it was it was a pretty tough gig, I have to say. You know, you, you come to realise in the car industry that uh, delivering vehicle programmes, it's just hard. Right? It's just hard. There isn't much more complex you can do than, I think, work in automotive. The, the things that have to come together in the sequence, they have to come together are, are complex and uncertain. So that's where it started, in the water industry and then into to Lotus. I'm super curious as to unpack some of the non-obvious finance functions and actually pick apart some of the different verticals of financing you know, innovation, hardware, software. What are some of the non-obvious implications for a finance person in the auto world that maybe the public just wouldn't have access to, um, to understanding? Um. So I'll say this, and I will instantly be pilloried by all my engineering colleagues, right? Uh, which there are many and several and many over 25 years sort of at this or 20 odd years at this. But the first thing you have to realize as a finance guy is that the engineers just don't think like you. And, and programs in the car industry, they're run by designers and engineers and technical people because out of necessity, they have to be. And there's a sort of TQ... Uh, C type approach, time, quality, and cost. That's that's how engineers think about programs. Okay, you know, deliver it on time, deliver something which is high quality, and then kind of a distant last is the cost bit. And if there's ever, you know, there's there's meant to be a neat triangulation between those two things, sort of a yin and yang that keeps all the three in harmony. Well, you know, the truth is there isn't. Given a choice, engineers will deliver something to extraordinarily high quality possibly over-engineered, right? And then there'll be time pressure because there'll be a program director leaning over the shoulder saying, hey, release that part. Or, uh, you know, we need to get these many hours of development testing done and you're behind, right? So time will come next. You know, and the and the infinite variable in an engineer's mind, uh, this is a horrid generalization, by the way, but my, this was my learning early, is cost. Hey, it's going to cost what it's going to cost, guys. We're delivering... We're engineering beauty and elegance and brilliance here, and we've got to do it by next Tuesday. It's going to cost what it costs, buddy. So actually, as a finance guy in auto, 
you've got to develop a pretty thick skin quickly. And you've got to develop a bit of technical competence if you don't have it already. There's no point as the bean counter going and talking to engineers if you don't know what you're talking about. So you've got to, you've got to learn some complex stuff quickly. And you've got to learn that the thing you're responsible for over and above anything else delivering to cost is their least favorite topic to discuss when the pressure's on. So there's one thing. I'm curious, I'm thinking right now about how uh, CFOs have to be great communicators. And it seems like you mentioned, you know, you have to develop technical abilities to be able to communicate effectively. In the world of AI today, a bunch of investors, shareholders, stakeholders of companies are really pressuring CEOs and CFOs to leverage AI tools. And I'm thinking that you've been through iterations over the last 20 years of different market cycles, different technology cycles. How have you successfully navigated communicating technically to other types of stakeholders, whether it's aligning with the board or shareholders? Uh, what's a strategy that you have deployed that you find successful that maybe others could leverage? Yeah, look, it's all it's all about relationships at the end of the day. I mean, you know, this is as old as the hills, this topic. Uh, but but a finance guy who is a genius with a spreadsheet, you know, a finance guy who who does great things with tax and treasury, a finance guy who knows the accounting standard rule book from back to front, that guy is is great, but that's 25% of the job. You know, 75% of the job is influencing and persuading and steering and suggesting and provoking and, and all of those things. And you can only do that with great relationship skills, which, which you know, I don't profess to have, by the way, but I have learned a lot along the route. And I've learned a lot by making a lot of mistakes on route. But the one thing I know, and this is, again, going back to that engineering analogy, Get to know what's important to the people you're working with. Get to know a bit about them. Get to really empathize. And you can only do that by, by you know, assimilating technical knowledge. Then you've got a good chance of understanding their perspective, where they're coming from. And having done that, you've bought some credibility and you've bought the door opening to be able to influence. So it's all about relationships. It's all about that. I'm curious as to, as we talk about communication skills and relationships, I'm interested in learning more about how you marry some of the um, kind of grandfathered in legacy of the brands that you work with, where the public has a picture of, you know, what McLaren is, you know, to people, what Aston Martin is to people. How do you communicate effectively and marry some of the heritage of investing in some of the legacy versus investing in innovation? And how do, you, how do you effectively communicate that from a finance function of just purely investment? Yeah, look, when, when, you're, when you're making the play uh, as to why people should invest, and, and I, find myself doing, I find myself doing this a lot at Aston, a lot at McLaren, you're almost trying to, once you've got serious investors in the door and you're talking to them, you're saying, look, you know, forget forget the beautiful badge, forget the heritage, don't get carried away by the glamour of it. You know, we want to convince you on the solid financial merits of why this works and why why you should invest. And you know, when I got when I got to Aston Martin, it had um it had a lot of legacy high yield debt. We were about 18 months out, a big refi, about 600 million of of uh, quite complicated instruments. 
And I sort of embarked on a, a charm offensive with the debt capital markets. Obviously, it's publicly traded debt. We weren't listed at that point, but it's publicly traded debt. And really, what we wanted to do was reassure those guys in advance of coming to refinance that, that there was fundamentally sound principles at play. What the brand, the heritage, the history, all of that great stuff away. So I think, I think getting yourself back to basics and getting people to understand this is take the badge away it's engineering and manufacturing okay now what the badge does is it it, it gives you leverage in respect to pricing mm. it gives you leverage in respect to volumes it gives you it gives you uplift that allows you to play in that space where where others can't but fundamentally beneath it it's got a it's got to knit together in a sensible way so you know i was always focused on getting people to think about the, the real fundamentals of what was going on in those in those brilliant driven very successful and wonderful brands yeah you mentioned that the brand itself has you know basically pricing power i'm curious if there are things that you uh invested in in marketing or in sponsoring events or in you know visibility that worked really well maybe other cfos are thinking how can i establish myself in a marketplace as effectively and it's clearly, you know, there there is a luxury item or luxury badge associated with status and class. And, you know, there's just a million different things that come with that, like pricing power. Yeah. But I'm curious if there are any lessons for CFOs who are trying to establish themselves in a marketplace as effectively as you've supported your teams. Yeah, and, and I think for for particularly for, for Aston and McLaren, that those partnerships were more inbound than outbound. So so we had many many more offers of people who wanted to work with us uh for the reach and the touch of our brand that, than we did the others however when you're doing something like a brand new product portfolio that we were doing at aston martin you needed to change the narrative a little bit as well uh, aston is a phenomenal brand uh, always always was uh, and always will be but we wanted to kind of change the narrative a little bit and update it and and give it more contemporary relevance given there was going to be a big new product push from from sort of 20 2016 onwards so we found ourselves at that point and this particularly we had a very visionary marketing director at that time you know my ceo andy palmer was he was he'd been around formula one as well with red bull when he was at infinity and so we took a view that actually the people we wanted to to work with were, were people that 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 had the same values that we had and that were brands that were enhancing for Aston Martin in, in the same way we would be for them. So we looked for mutually beneficial partnerships. And, and I think, you know, one great legacy partnership at Aston that, that, that endures to this day is the Bond franchise, the James Bond franchise with Aston Martin. And it's a great example of two phenomenally well-known brands working in in sort of beautiful harmony with each other and the sum of the two of them is greater than the individual parts great though those parts are so you always looked for brand affinities and brand partnerships where there was mutual benefit where, where it was simply to the benefit of one party we tended to steer away from that even if that was in our interests where we said well you know what's what's the other side getting out of this how do they really truly deeply benefit from being associated mm. with what we are um at mclaren it was a different proposition because mclaren was a young charging automotive brand you know a storied formula one brand 
steeped in a lot of history and a huge amount of success, but a, a very young automotive brand. And, and beyond Tesla, you know, you can count on two fingers the number of new automotive brands that have come out of nowhere, really. I mean, you can you can look at Infinity, you can look at Lexus. I mean, they are the product of massive OEMs. McLaren was tiny in many respects, and, you know, Tesla was non-existent. So, you know, it shows you how, how hard it is to, to sort of build those things from zero. But whereas at McLaren, we were... We weren't really focused on partnerships because the Formula One team had partnerships right. that by osmosis in many respects were available to the, the car company. But we were very focused on what the McLaren automotive brand was of itself. And that was hugely product led. It was hugely technology led. So we didn't really seek out partnerships in that way or other brands in the way we did with Aston, where we were trying to take a brand, a car brand that stood for very many good things and add to those good things by making it a bit more contemporary. So it's a mutual benefit is, is the cornerstone of that, the answer to that question, I think. Yeah, excellent. That's a really good point. You know, you've been in the auto industry for over 20 years. I'm curious as how you measure your personal success at this point in your career, whether it's uh, you know, being just purely a financial value add, whether it's, like you mentioned, these strategic partnerships and making sure there's mutual benefit. How do you piece together your framework of success for you know your career yeah do you know that's, that's a really good question and and it's only with the benefit of hindsight that you can kind of look back and say well you know this is this is what i really got out of it this is what i put into it as well uh i think at the time it just felt like a massive fight to do anything everyone thinks growth or turnaround and the kind of cornerstone of my automotive career has been growth so something from nothing at mclaren and and a bit of turnaround at aston where we got there uh, and we had to really reinvigorate it. And everybody thinks those things are, you know, our oh, growth is fantastic. It's high fives, it's champagne Fridays. It's, you know, it's just a joyous experience. Well, do you know what it isn't? It's it's the hardest thing you can imagine. It's constant bleeding out your eyeballs and broken knuckles and fending off the next chaotic failure. You know, that's what nobody sees during growth, the things you fail at, right? Because you shut the door on them quick. Uh, they just see the successful path you appear to have threaded. Well, you know, huge amount of failure on the way. But fail fast, right? You know, understand it, fail fast, don't linger. How have I measured success? Well, I've measured success, I think, having been part of, um, you know, those two particular brands, having been in the thick and the start of something new and being able to demonstrate there was influence beyond the spreadsheet in all of those things. And, and longevity as well, you know. I was at McLaren eight and a half years, I was at Aston five and a bit years. You don't survive in those roles if, if it ain't working out. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think probably having been in early and been part of the team that said, here's some tangible stuff we did and did well. And, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't always that way. You know, there was some very public failures as well. But you take those equally with the great stuff. And, and I think if you can point to a list of, things you've been part of, uh, things you're proud of, things that have been publicly recognized, I think you can say there's been a measure of success there. Oh, that's a great answer. Continued growth is a really interesting comment. I just thinking about how you think of focus and drive in a world that has so many distractions. Like you mentioned, the badge brings a lot of yeah. you know, celebrity and attention and media. I'm curious as to how you think through focus on continued growth within that level of distraction. Yeah, and, and I'd add another thing to that, as well as celebrity, what it also brings, that those brands, they attract 
the greatest people, you know, the greatest technical people, the best engineers, the best designers, the best manufacturing people, you know, people on top of their game in sales and marketing. And by the way, those people are not easy to deal with because they're usually smart and they bring a level of success. So, you know, working with great people has a tax as well. Not, not, not easy. So, so there's that to consider. The distractions are legion, right? Mm. I, think, I think what you have to do first and foremost is have a plan. And, and as the CFO, actually, you get a great opportunity to lead that. A lot of CEOs like to lead the plan, but a lot more like it if the CFO does it and they can articulate the vision and leave the CFO to get on with the wiring diagram. So I think starting out with a great plan. And, and you know what? The plan doesn't have to be right, which is a kind of crazy thing for a finance guy to say. It just has to be credible and you have to be able to rally the organization behind it. And there has to be belief in the plan. Uh, and, and not that these are crazy aspirations that I'm just going to get lent on as an engineer to deliver and there's no hope. Right? So you, you, you've got to craft the plan in that way. But ha- having a plan then allows you as the CFO to be the, the kind of conscience on the shoulder of the organisation saying, OK, everyone, we've got completely carried away by the massive success of, you know, insert new vehicle in square brackets, whatever it is. But let's just focus over here for a minute because the plan says this. And we've only just climbed the smaller foothills of the Himalayas and there's Mount Everest ahead and we need to focus on Mount Everest. So I think having a plan that the organisation believes in, that, that you can use as a touchstone, that you can use as your rallying cry, is really helpful. There's the other problem, of course, that, that through and through I'm a car guy. So I have possibly the best job and the worst job in the world mm. because a lot of the time... Whilst you want to say to some of the more visionary guys in your organisation, wow, that's a great idea. I, I love it. I love what you've done. The rational human in you says, yeah, but it's either too great a risk or we haven't got the cash or the timing's not right. Or, or. So you know, that kind of discipline always mm. keeps your feet on the ground because if as the CFO, you're a cheerleader too, the organization isn't far away from a car crash, I think. And so you've constantly got to, you, if nobody else is being the conscience on the shoulder, then you should always look as the CFO to do that. So that's kind of how you keep the distractions away. And every now and again, of course, you have to let, you have to open the door and let yourself into the uh, the garden of delights and just, just enjoy it. I have but to ask, what's an example of a garden of del- in, uh, in delight for you? Oh, or do, does it ever go away, you know, after 20 no, years? No, it never does. And, you know, I remember one of the great things was just access to an extraordinary range of, of brilliant things to drive all the time. And, you know, I rationalise that and I'm, you know, I'm absolutely aware of how, how this is going to sound, but it's the truth. I'd rationalise that as, look, I'm the CFO of this business. I need to know how these cars perform. Because if I don't, how do I know if I'm getting the wall pulled over my eyes? That's the way I used to post-rationalise, saying, right, I'm taking I'm taking a VP car this weekend, or I'm taking this for a you know a 200 mile drive, and I want to drive in it. Actually, the initial motivation for doing that is I want to drive some cool new stuff, and I just want to do it because I'm a car guy. And so far, and I post-rationalised it on the basis of ah, oh, but I've got no. So there was there's truth in both in reality because you do have to know. Uh, you can't sit around the board table and 
and you know not know what people are talking about when they're talking about spring rates and dampers and ride and drive and noise vibration and harshness if you haven't intimately experienced it yourself and how can you have a view on the state of development of a car if you haven't driven it for 300 miles in in the hosing rain and and really put some mileage accumulation how, how can you know how do you how do you make good decisions about where to invest significant amounts of money when stuff's going wrong if you haven't lived it? But the great thing was it was a constant garden of delights. The other thing that, that particularly this is great for supercar manufacturers, there's this thing called competitor benchmarking, which is the engineer's version of what I've just described, where they go, we need to go and buy one of everything our competition are doing so that we can intimately understand attributes targets so at mclaren at any given point in time there was always a sort of you know a small range but nevertheless a range of ferraris and lambos and i remember even a rolls royce phantom once because it was held up to be the the naples ultra in terms of ride and handling and and spring rates and damping and so there was always something to stick your head out the back door and go oh can i can i go and drive that so that was always great fun. But you always tempered it with the fact there was a real job to do here. And, uh, you know, if you were being seen to be spinning off in all the cool stuff as the CFO, well, that gave license to everybody to do that. And, you know, where did that all end? Right. I'm curious as to how you benchmark yourself. I mean, you obviously have a really competitive peer group. Are you close in other CFO networks in different auto industries? One of the things that I've loved in doing this podcast is creating a, a community of CFOs who then connect with each other i'm curious as how you benchmark yourself in performance is it strictly other cfos in the auto world are you actively you know connecting to cfos in different industries to learn from them that's a really good question my peer group at the time i mean i left aston in 2020 uh, so that's in automotive term light years ago so yeah i'm connected to my peer group as it was in the day and it's quite interesting you see each other at motor shows and you make time and effort to do that is there a networking group of automotive CFOs who meet on a regular basis to talk about stuff? Do you know, there isn't. There isn't. And I, I think it, it that goes to the heart of probably where the competitive nature, particularly in supercars, is. You know, that, that notwithstanding, one of the things I've hugely enjoyed is, is you know, bringing a, putting a team of people around me who are smarter than I am. And, and now I see that sort of matures into people who, who've, you know, I've given opportunity to, I've worked with, they've worked in my teams. They're now CFOs in their own right. So my network tends to be closer to those sort of people than it does necessarily the peer group. So it's, it's a fascinating question. I, I, I would tend to do CFO networking events. I'd go and speak at a few things or, and I'd, I'd use those as good opportunities to just network with non-auto CFOs. Because actually, there's a bit of an echo chamber to talking to people who are like you in your own industry. And, and I was more, always more interested to find people I thought were cool and did cool stuff. Uh, and that necessarily wasn't was an auto. So I would probably badge it that way. It's either I have an esoteric group of people who are non-auto, and then I have a closer group who I've worked with or, or have worked for me who, who are now running their own companies. And, you know, that's a very fulfilling thing to, to stay close to. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk a little bit about your current transition and how you came to uh, an electric motorcycle company. The world of EVs is always fascinating to me. I'm super curious as to the latest technologies, you know, measuring you know, the impact on the environment, uh, what what is great for investors. Where you know, as 
different countries we can invest in a, in a greener world. And mm-hmm. what's really impactful, but also uh, Verge, this motorcycle company, it's cutting edge. It's a marriage of incredible style and performance from what I know so far. So I'd love to hear your story of how you came to Verge and what excited you about it the most, and maybe a little bit of your view on the electric vehicle space in general. Sure. Well, you know, consistent with most of my career, I've 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 been largely opportunist. There hasn't been a roadmap of stuff I needed to do, but but I've I kind of put myself in positions whereby when opportunity comes, you know, I'm I'm sort of there or thereabouts. And and that that probably adequately describes Verge. The truth is I I left Aston Martin in 2020. I took a bit of time out, pandemic hit, so that upended everything for everyone. And mid-pandemic, I ended up buying a, an art business. We had eight art galleries, two online businesses. My version of perhaps a midlife crisis, having done V8s and V12s for two decades previously, that wasn't really a route. And I still own that business today and wasn't really necessarily looking. But a, but a mutual acquaintance in, in private equity got in touch with me and said, look, we're, we're looking at this company called Verge bunch of Scandinavian guys developed this technology. And initially, I was quite sceptical. I'm thinking, well, electric motorbikes, what I know of them, they're, they're kind of heavy. They're very top-heavy, very pendulous, not very good range, performance, heat. Well, it's going to have to be interesting. And anyway, as soon as I, I saw this thing, and you've seen it, right? It's got this extraordinary in-wheel motor, hubless in-wheel motor, where there should be something that's just fresh air, put your arm through the middle of where there should be a hub and spokes holding the thing on. And it captivated me. And I thought, my, you know, my initial reaction was, right, well, I've got to, I need to understand this because if this is true, that looks extraordinary. It's game-changing because, because it does a huge amount. And so I got in, I got in touch and, and, and had a look at the company with the, with the private equity colleague. And the more I looked into it, the more intrigued I became, not least because this is a, this is not a, this wasn't, this is back in January of last year. Uh, when, when I really started to get serious with it. This wasn't a company that had a sheet of paper with some drawings on it, a concept, some renderings, some CAD, you know, some crazy performance figures that are vaporware. It was a company with a real bike, a late-stage prototype, almost production-ready, and crucially, homologated for sale in Europe. I thought, you know, how, have I, how, have I, how do I not know about this? And it's testament to the the... The four founders that the, they've taken a very cautious and conservative approach over the previous three and a half years. They've been like a submarine at the bottom of the ocean, just sort of skimming along quietly, doing their thing and um, developing and maturing the, the concept of this thing slowly, thoughtfully, uh, and, and with all their own money, by the way. Wow. Um, and I stumbled on it. And, and, and as soon as I saw it and got to know it a bit more, um, I realized it was something quite game-changing and introduced to the founders and they very kindly invited me to join the board as, a, as a, an advisor, which I, I did. And through that sort of advisory role, I came to see the development in the first part of this year and through the year. And it, it very quickly became obvious that the vision and the entrepreneurial spirit of of those four founders, which had got them to an almost impossible position, perhaps wasn't going to be the thing that was going to take them further in scaling and industrializing this business. And so I said, look, you know, 
I'm quite interested to do something more with you and I think you need a CFO and they agreed and I've subsequently brought with me some colleagues and some very smart people from my world a chief operating officer Alan Foster who's 40 years in the industry built the McLaren production center uh, and ran the entire car manufacturing quality operation out of there uh Aidan Baker who was latterly the VP of advanced projects at Rivian working with RJ Scavenger there because what the founders have realized is the the the, the, the greatness that got them where they were, the skills that got them to where they were, won't be the same skills needed to, to move further on. And I think you see this quite a lot in businesses that scale and perhaps don't make it. You know, people don't people don't realise what is the right point in time to bring in some calloused hands, some broken bones and, and some of the grey hair of experience. It wouldn't have been the right time at the start because they'd never have this. I'd have killed this project from day one. Someone had brought me this and said, hey, we're going to invent a rim motor, right, which is unlike anything else that exists out there, which has 1,200 newton metres of torque, charge time of 25 minutes, 0 to 60 in two and a half seconds. It completely inverts the weight paradigm of electric bikes, puts everything at the bottom, low centre of gravity. I just said, yep, I'm not investing in that. And, um, you know, let me know how you get on. So, you know, they were entrepreneurial enough and smart enough to, to not bring people like me in to begin with. Uh, but now they're, they are where they are. Maybe I'm being a bit harsh on myself. Maybe I would have got carried away with it, but but possibly not. A lot of people wouldn't. So you know that's that's how I came to be here at Verge, and we're about to um, we're about to announce shortly a fourth member of that sort of uh, you won't mind me saying it grey hair team. Not 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 yet. Not ready to do that. But but his CV knocks mine and Alan's and Hayden's into the weeds compared to what he's done before. Always work with people who impress you, right? Um, so, you know, we're building a strong team of people at Verge to, to make this, this extraordinary bike um, an industrial reality, I think. So you mentioned that time flies in the auto world, just that, that fact that you left McLaren four years ago, uh, or Aston, McLaren four yeah. years ago, yeah. uh, Aston, one of the two, uh, either way. The, uh, the concept uh, of time flying is really interesting to me as just a point of this opportunity to have a conversation about what you feel defines a modern CFO, uh, because the differences in being a CFO at a well-established brand, it seems like you have entrepreneurial spirits, given the fact that your galleries have taken off and you tried something new during the pandemic. But what's a definition for you personally of a modern CFO? And what are some of the differences in working with established brands versus having the opportunity to scale from basically ground zero? Right. The modern CFO, I think, first and foremost, you take a technical basis for granted. Okay, so modern CFO, you've got to, you've got to understand the accounting standards. You've got to understand a huge amount about the base, the bases you're covering, tax, treasury, risk. It's a big one for the CFO these days. But crucially, above anything, the modern CFO is a people person. Uh, the modern CFO is somebody who is capable of recognising that the people they need in their team are a diverse collection of interesting and often awkward individuals who complement each other. Mm. Uh, the modern CFO probably doesn't hire in his or her image. You know, they hire people who are great at what they're not. So the modern CFO, I think, 
you've got to have a level of humility. You've got to be able to look at yourself and say, well, what am I good at and what do I enjoy? Uh, what am I not good at and what do I not enjoy? And that's a much harder question to answer. And then when you figure out the answer to those other two questions, you go and find people who are great at the things you're poor at and who love the things you don't enjoy. And you know what? You give them a load of responsibility with some support and then you let them get on with it. I think the modern CFO doesn't try and shape too much. You've got to give people room to breathe in the team. People bring their own styles, their own perspectives, their own unique ways of working. And there's got to be room for that in a finance function. I don't think a deterministic, thou shalt do it my way approach. Uh, command and control, I think, is, is, is dead in the traditional sense of it. Uh, you have to find clever ways of teaching people how to control themselves. It's a bit like the give a man a fish or give him a fishing net analogy, right? So the modern CFO recognises that the businesses need to be able to breathe. Modern CFO recognises that the word no is probably the easiest word to deploy. Right? I, I mean, I can sit in every meeting I have and say, no, we're not doing that. And eventually the company will die through lack of innovation and, you know, and an overly defensive nature. So you've got, to, you've got to understand intimately risk. So I think the modern CFO has a really good grasp of what risk is. Risk is a hugely misunderstood subject, actually, in the same way probability. People wildly misunderstand probability. Risk is the same. Risk is really, I think, understanding what things are going to kill you and having a plan to deal with those things. It, it, you know, you can get lost in some really esoteric discussions around risk. But in truth, it's, it's the modern CFO is sort of searching the horizon for those things and looking for those, those big landmines. Uh, and maybe you're less worried about the smaller stuff. Interesting. So, the, yeah. I, I'm just curious what you're most excited about in the next 12 months versus three to five years. Uh, as you continue to deploy that skill set that you really adequately and actually I normally save, save this for a different part of the episode. But if you want, I would suggest folks just hit that back 30 second button a couple of times and re-listen to that incredible definition of a modern CFO. And, uh, you know, focusing in on risk and probability and what will kill you, I think, is one of the more unique answers that we've had. So thanks so much for that. But going and zooming out a little bit for Verge the next 12 months and, you know, what, what do you think in the next three to five years might be the most exciting iteration as you uh, fend off death and, you know, stay alive long enough to get really lucky? Yeah, well, that's that. And that's a great definition of its, of its own as well, because, because if the plan comes off, you, um, you owe a lot of it to good decisions, but a low, owe a lot of it as well to putting you away, putting yourself in the way of good luck. I don't think, you know, luck is not a thing you can control. But, you know, harder you work, the luckier you get, I think, uh, is, a, is, a, is a fair way to, to analyse it. Next 12 months. I mean, I'm, I'm hugely excited for Verge and scaling now the ambition, really industrialising, turning this phenomenal company into a company that's got a global customer base, that's got uh, bikes competing in the important segment, a company that's leading technologically in terms of what it's doing in the electric bike space. I mean, I'm really looking forward to setting the agenda in that respect and, and being right at the forefront of, of technological development. And look, we talk about the hub motor in Verge. I mean, that's phenomenal. Uh, that, that really is the game changer. And it's the hook for many people who go, show me more. But what we're preparing to do with sensors, software, immersive human machine interface experience which sounds like a horrible thing from marketing doesn't it but 
but really it's about how do you make a bike that's technology led how do you improve the digital experience a, a bike is a really analog thing it's visceral it's noisy it's smelly you know you are connected to the road by a set of forks two wheels right you're out in the open air in an electric world one of those things is taken away i mean the performance is enhanced by by some measure but 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 the noise and, and the sound so so how do you deepen the immersion of what people are doing um you know head-up display helmets and and how we how your bike is sensing what's going on around you and feeding that back to you in real time and taking advantage of software so all of those things excite me massively the possibilities there are are huge to really sort of redefine the riding experience in in the digital age and you know i think as well coming through the difficult economic times that we have been and continue to be we have been in and continue to be is is exciting i'm excited for what's next economically i mean we see mm. the us now tends to lead the way in many respects when it when people are coming out of difficult times the us now a few green shoots a bit of growth you know, there's still a lot of uncertainty in the world, but I'm but I'm I'm optimistic um, for where where the where the, the market in the world is going to be. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned having a, a global expansion plan for other CFOs who have uh, global footprints in terms of risk and probability. What are some lessons that you've learned over time on how to you know think through some of the more global risk aspects of being a CFO and being defensive? Yeah. Have some good local advisors. Um, mm-hmm. so when you're trialing into new markets, new countries, uh, find a good local advisor who understands their their way around how you set things up and how you get things done is important. So you know that's that's really really important. I think as well, having local knowledge, whether that's through uh, people you're going to employ on the ground, and then really listening to them because people people know and understand the countries they've lived and worked in. Um, very easy to go and say, right, we're going to do it this way. And, you know, your cultural experience is, is, is quite different to uh, what's really going on in the country. I think don't rush at it, go at a, go at a decent pace. I mean, we're, we're, we've expanded into Europe. We're now in, uh, we now have a presence in uh, five or six major countries in, in, in Western Europe. We're in, we're in the US. We have a, a business in the US, which is readying itself for, the homologation of the bike later this year uh, in the US. But look, I think have have good local knowledge, invest in good local advisors um, and take things at a careful pace. You can overwhelm yourself. That's really good advice. Uh, yeah, it's always interesting for, you know, part of that plan to be, you know, the rest of the world strategy. But I think I think you make a really good point of having it be really thoughtful, methodic and part of the overall strategy and plan. And investing in local advisors is great advice. One of the things I, I love to do on this show is zoom way out and talk a little bit about something that you feel is personally underestimated in the world today. And I think it's just a fun way to you know, kind of highlight the uniqueness of the perspectives that we have uh, in our guests. Something that's underestimated. I'm going to give you a slightly more philosophical answer to that. What's underestimated is uncertainty. The, the world we live in is is sort of continually chaotic and uncertain. And, and I think your ability to predict what's going to happen three, six, 12 months, five years hence, you have to be constantly alive to the fact that you're going to be clamorously wrong. Okay. Mm. So uncertainty, despite the despite the fact we don't appear to learn from from, from what has happened before, pe- people always assume 
that there is, I think, some sort of order in the world and there's some sort, you know, we will we will be shortly returning back to an orderly world. Well, we won't. I think we'll, and I think as a CFO, you've got to be constantly alive to that uncertainty. And that's all about, I think, being fleet of foot and not being too deterministic and, and having a plan that is capable of having many alternate futures in it. And, and so, yeah, un- uncertainty, we can't, uncertainty is constantly and consistently underestimated. So that, that is, that I think is the thing. And, and, and I sort of relate in CFO terms. It's, it's, you know, when you're doing a, a three or five year plan, you know, we've written one with Verge. It's deterministic. It has one answer, right? You know, there's the plan. It has one answer. Well, what you really need to do is stress test that plan and push it around a bit and say, what happens if I tweak this? What happens if, if I pull this? What happens if I change these things? And have in your mind that you're walking down a broad path, not a narrow one. Because I think when the next pandemic hits, whether it will or not, who knows, when Putin next invades wherever he's going to invade, when gas bills and electricity bills and utility bills go through the roof, when global inflation gets out of shape, when interest rates rise at an, a, a level unprecedented since the 1980s, then you're in a good position because you know, you're walking down a broad range of futures because you simply cannot anticipate when that will be. You know, you and I could put this podcast to an end shortly and something could happen that neither of us in our wildest dreams would have predicted. And I think just carrying that attitude with you, you'll be happier as a human being accepting that the world is inherently uncertain. That's a really interesting answer. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, I want to end on kind of a fun, light note in terms of where you go for, uh, you know, car stuff, uh, whether it's YouTube, your favorite YouTube channels, or if you've got publications. And then the same question with uh, sort of financial and global news. I'm always interested, you know, putting a podcast out there where people are, you know, curating their news feeds or where they're getting their information from. Yeah, no, I am definitely, I I was an avid reader of, uh, these are UK publications, but, but what car, Top Gear, yeah, I, I used to my, my bedroom was stuffed with these publications growing up and I would read them cover to cover intimately. And uh, and it's where I got all my background knowledge from, I guess, that, that gave you a sort of mental map in your head of what was going on in the in the auto world. And, and I, you know, I do still like a magazine, but I love YouTube. I, I love the sort of real online People like Mr. JWW, Shmi150, that these are great guys. Car Wow in the UK, that's always that's always great to see. So I probably consume most of my auto content online now. And overwhelmingly, there is there's so much that it's sometimes it's hard to it's hard to sort of, you know, do I want to see a a hurricane versus an Aventador SVJ drag race up the Brunting Thorpe? So I'll go on and I'll have a look. And then suddenly. 15 minutes later, you've 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 lost a chunk of your day and you're doing something else. So I tend to get a lot of my auto stuff now absolutely online. I mean, I'm I'm on a platform that used to be known as Twitter X. I'm on t- t- and, and a lot of my a lot of people I follow on there are car people and auto people. So that will often be an interesting diet of of chat and what's going on. Insta as well. But I am a I am a sucker for a, an old car mag. There's nothing quite like a well-produced, you know, thoughtfully edited bit of car journalism. By the way, I don't read car mags online. It doesn't work for me. Um, <laughs> Interesting. I, I completely just it, the, the experience, the content might be exactly the same, but the experience just doesn't work. 
it's just not just doesn't work so it, it there's nothing like a bit of print do like a bit of print uh, and therefore for the modern stuff then it's vids so that's uh that's the car world yeah and then we'll end on favorite drive of all time favorite car of all time what was the best memory you had it's a tough one i know but we got we got is it the car hanging up behind you uh, that's the valkyrie uh the aston valkyrie I never drove, I left before we even had drivable prototypes. So if I had a regret, it was never getting into, into that car. I think probably my favorite drive of all time, and this is really anodyne, it's not particularly, and I've, I've been fortunate to drive oh, every brand everywhere, right? I mean, you know, I've, I've, I've been around a lot, but it's really anodyne. It was the first time I ever got into an MP412C. So it was um, VP12. It was Papaya, which is in the McLaren color, that, or that soft orange. Papaya VP12 car. And it was the first time I got to drive McLaren's first ever modern supercar. And I took it for a drive down Woking is where the headquarters are in the UK. Uh, down the A320, up to the M25, and just down towards the A3 in some country lanes. But it was um, it was a joyous experience. Uh, I'll remember the sun was shining brightly, or it probably wasn't, but it, I just remember being so excited that, that this was the birth of something entirely new and and unlike what had, what had gone before it. A bit like Verge's now, in truth, because that 12C when it came out was was groundbreaking. Carbon sh- 80 kilo carbon chassis you know, a, a really innovative engine, you know, mind-blowing performance. Reminds me a bit of what I'm about to do with Verge. So maybe ask me again in a year's time. I will. And I might have a two-wheeled answer for you. So, so that was my, my first 12C drive. Oh, that's incredible. Thanks so much for sharing that story. I always call it the uh, the G4 smile. As you, the faster you go, the bigger the grin. And uh, yeah, I appreciate absolutely. that. For those listening, I've had that grin on the, the entire episode. It's been an absolute pleasure, Mark. Where can people find more about you and Verge if they want to get in contact or check out the bikes? Sure. Uh, thank you for that. Um, www.vergemotorcycles.com will tell you everything you need to know. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can probably find me gently hidden on Twitter if you look hard enough. But uh, go, go and have a look on the website. It points you in, in the right direction. I'm delighted to hear from anybody um, um, via LinkedIn as well. That's a, that's a great way to get hold of me. And you know what? I'm, I'm really happy to reach out and have conversations on there. I'm, I'm pretty approachable. So uh, you know, do that and uh, you might find a new friend. Excellent. This has been another incredible episode of the Modern CFO Podcast. Mark, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Andrew.